But you know that song, Is He Worthy? I think that's a fair question. To those of us who know the Lord and are saved, we would certainly say, yes, of course, Jesus is worthy of our praise and of our worship. But, you know, you think about Christians all around the world today, millions of Christians gathered in worship centers and in homes and outdoor facilities today, worshiping and honoring God. I think that's a fair question. Is Jesus Christ really worthy of that? In other words, if you're here today and you're not saved and you're kind of on the fence as some were this morning and when they got saved and made their decision for the Lord, but maybe you're trying to decide, am I going to go the way of Christianity? Am I going to go the way of Islam? Is I, am I going to go the way of Buddhism or Hinduism or some other religion or no religion at all? And so today you're wondering, is Jesus Christ really worthy of all of my praise? Oswald Chambers' book is called My Utmost for His Highest. Is Jesus worth my best for His glory? You know, all around the world today, Christians, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And most likely, even today, somewhere in the world, a terrorist or someone who is anti-Christ will have, have, they've already captured Christians, and they will say to them, either renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, or we're going to cut your throat, and you'll die right now. And so our brothers and sisters all around the world are saying, you've got to do what you've got to do, but I've got to do what I've got to do, and I'm not going to renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that means you're going to cut my throat, then you, you've got to do that because I'm, I'm going to stand for Jesus. But we ask ourselves today, is Jesus Christ really worthy of a sacrifice such as that? All around the world today, maybe even in this service today, people will be surrendering their lives to what we call full-time Christian service, pastors, teachers, uh, student ministers, missionaries. And they say, what I want to do with my life is, is surrender it to God and to His work. Now, obviously, that's not as big of a sacrifice as having your neck cut and being killed like that, becoming a martyr. But still, that's a big deal. But we ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ really worthy of somebody devoting his or her whole life to His work? Even earlier in the service day, we took up our offering. We passed these plates. We probably don't think much about it. Most of us who come to church all the time, we know we're supposed to give a tithe to God. But if I were a, a somebody thinking about whether or not I should become a Christian, and, and I think about what the Bible teaches, let's play like that you have a job making $50,000 a year, and so 10% of that would be $5,000, and you're going to give maybe a little extra to beyond these walls or, or to something, help kids at Christmas. And so, is Jesus Christ really worthy? If you make 50000 a year of $7,000 a year, is Jesus worthy of all this worship, all this giving, all this praise, all this sacrifice that is being made in His name? Well, the answer to that question is, of course, yes. And if you'll open your Bibles today, the book of Revelation, chapter number 5, I want to show you several reasons today why Jesus Christ is indeed worthy of your very best. He's worthy of your heart, of your faith, of your life, and of your soul. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, I just would encourage you today for the next 25 or 30 minutes as I teach right out of the Bible, listen with an open mind and see if you don't agree with what the Bible says that Jesus is indeed worthy. Now, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle John has been taken up to heaven, and he is getting a glimpse of what heaven is like. These are two of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. We've spent three weeks going through Revelation chapter 4, talking about the 24 elders up there worshiping God. They, these 24 elders represent redeemed humanity. 
We have seen where the four living creatures, some kind of a special group of angels, is worshiping at the very throne of God. And in heaven, John's getting a glimpse of how people are casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus in praise and honor and glory to Him. These crowns that are a reward of faithful deeds are being given back to Jesus in worship. Now, when we come to chapter 5, it's very interesting, the vision that John sees. And let's pick up in verse number 1. John said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God the Father's right hand, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel. By the way, we don't know which angel this was. There are some people who speculate that it might be the angel Gabriel because Gabriel's name literally means strength of God. Maybe Gabriel, maybe some other angel. But there's a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so one of the elders said to John, John, you've looked all around and nobody is worthy, but there is one who is worthy to take that scroll from God the Father's hands and to open it and to break those seals so that we can read what is on the inside of that scroll. Now, as we'll see next week when we get to chapter 6, on the inside of that scroll, God had written out the, how the world would eventually end. And so we'll start next week with a description from God's Word on the period of great tribulation that will one day come upon this earth after Christians have been raptured up to heaven to be with God forever. That's what, that is the content of what is in this scroll. But Jesus was the only one who was worthy to open this scroll. So what I want to do today is mention to you several reasons why Jesus Christ was not only worthy to open this scroll, but why Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. And before I get into that, let me just say this. The word worship comes from an old English word that means worth-ship. Worth-ship. And so... The teaching of Scripture is we worship Jesus because He is worthy of our worship. And let me just mention several reasons. The first reason why Jesus is worthy is because He is the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. That is, predictions, prophecies that were made by Old Testament writers hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem were all fulfilled in Jesus. And we get two of those descriptions here in verse 5. Look again. The elder said to John, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's one of the oldest messianic references in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 49, we read that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, be one of the descendants of Judah. And also, it says the root of David. So we know that Jesus was of the house and of the lineage of David. So these are clear references to the Messiah now being depicted on Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus is called the lion, the strongest of the animals, and he's called the root, the strongest part of the tree. All the way through the Old Testament, we read descriptions of 
prophecies that were made that would one day be fulfilled in the Messiah. It says, for example, in Isaiah, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Micah, it says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Zechariah, it said that the Messiah would one day ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. All of these prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 says that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. In Psalm 22, we read that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And so, these are just some of the prophecies made in the Old Testament that were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy because He fulfills all those prophecies. Let me say this today about the Bible. The Bible is unlike any other book that you'll ever read. Most books were written by one person. It takes about six months or a year to write the book. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years on three different continents. The Old Testament is predicting things that would happen hundreds of years later in the New Testament. And these predictions were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the first reason that Jesus is worthy of our worship is because He's the fulfillment of those prophecies. No other religious leader can even, no other religion can even claim that their leader has fulfilled so many prophecies uh, that it, like the, they don't even claim something like that. But Jesus is worthy of our worship not only because he fulfills those prophecies, he's worthy of our worship because he is the creator of the world. See, Jesus goes farther back even than the, these Old Testament prophecies. He has created the world. Now, look in chapter 4 and in verse number 11. Because as we saw last week, in heaven, the 24 elders, the angels, the living creatures are worshiping God the Father. And they're saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so they're saying to God, God, you're the creator. And we all believe that. Everybody that's a person of faith believes that God is the creator of the world. But what's interesting in chapter 5 is that Jesus Christ is now equated with God the Father. In fact, in chapter 4, if you look at the very end of verse number 5, we looked at this in detail last week, it says, seven, John said, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So as I said last week, these seven spirits of God is a description. The number seven is completeness and perfection. So seven spirits of God, it's the perfection and the fullness of the presence of God. That same description that is used in chapter 4 to describe God the Father is used in chapter 5 to describe Jesus Christ the Son. Look at the end of verse 6 in chapter number 5. Just the last phrase. It says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so the seven spirits of God are now being applied to Jesus. Now, if you see, if you notice the, the song of praise in chapter 4, verse 11, that is given to God the Father, and then you go to chapter 5, and you look begin in verse 9 at what they're singing to Jesus. You are worthy, this is to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open 
open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Look at verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The same thing that they sang to God the Father, now they're singing to Jesus. Look in verse 13, halfway through the verse. Look at what they're singing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And so John gets this vision how in heaven, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and the angels, what are they doing? They are ascribing to God and giving to God the exact same worship to Jesus, rather, that they had given to God. And what they're saying and what we know is that Jesus Christ is God. He's the creator of all things. And so one of the reasons that Jesus is worthy of our worship is he made us and he made this world in which we live. A third reason that Jesus is worthy of our praise is that he is the sacrificial and the risen lamb. Now look in verse number six. This is one of the great verses in chapter number five talking about Jesus being our lamb. John said, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And so earlier John describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And now he's describing Jesus as the lamb who had been slain. But this lamb who had been slain is now living. He's standing. This lamb, John said, stood in heaven. And so aren't we thankful today that in Jesus we have not not only the sacrificial lamb, but we have a risen living lamb. That Jesus Christ came out of that grave and that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave for us. That word for lamb there, in the Greek language, there are several different words for lamb. This particular word is describing a pet lamb, a lamb that you might would take into your house like you would take a dog or a cat. Sometimes they would, people would take a lamb and they would make that lamb a pet. In fact, in the Old Testament during the Passover celebration, four days before the sacrificial lamb was offered and they would put the blood over the doorpost so that the the deaf angel would pass over their house, Jewish families would take a lamb into their home, and for four days, that lamb became part of their family. Kids probably named the lamb. Kids played with the lamb. And then the lamb was sacrificed uh, up to God. Now, the question is, why would families have been commanded to take their lamb, the lamb into their house for four days and make it like a family pet. Well, but remember, those Old Testament lambs were a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And what was happening in, during those four days, they were developing a relationship with that lamb. There was a connection with that lamb. That lamb was gentle and tender and meek, and that lamb was so uh, gentle that it could even live in the home. And what was saying is that when Jesus Christ died on that cross, you need to understand, you have the Lamb of God who is gentle, who wants to have a relationship with us, who is a person, and He is being sacrificed on that cross. And so those four days that the Lamb would be in the home were intended to represent the fact that when Jesus died, that should touch and break our hearts even, because 
a very gentle person was killed for our sins. Notice it says, John said, I saw a lamb that stood, uh, that stood in heaven as though it had been slain. And so John is able to see in Jesus the wounds, the scars in the hands, in the side, and in the feet of Jesus. Someone has well said that the only thing in heaven that is man-made are the wounds and the scars in the body of Jesus Christ. And for all eternity... And when we get to heaven, when, every time we look at Jesus, we'll see those scars and they'll be a reminder to us of the sacrifice that this gentle lamb made so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be saved. And so we worship him today because he's the sacrificial and the risen lamb. Now, and that, to those of you today on the fence, you're trying to decide, Christianity or some other religion? Well, consider this, no other religion even claims to have as the leader of their religion someone who died to pay for the sins of the world and then came back to life. Nobody even claims that. And yet in Jesus Christ, he not only claimed it, he did it, and it is indeed true. A fourth reason why Jesus is worthy of our worship, not only is he the sacrificial and risen lamb, but Jesus has all power. Look back in verse 6, after we read about this lamb standing in heaven, we read this phrase, having seven horns. Now, it'd be easy for us just to read that and think, well, Jesus has seven horns. But this is symbolic language. Again, the number seven is completion and perfection. But horns in the Bible are always a picture of strength, power, and authority. An animal that has horns has an advantage over an animal that doesn't because an animal can use that horns to, to, kill, to kill that other animal. And so Jesus has these horns, as it were, that are being described, symbolizing to us that he has all power, all authority, all the strength in the world is in the person of Jesus Christ. You say, now, John, I believe that. But specifically, what does Jesus have the power to do? Many things, everything, anything. Let me mention a couple. First, he has the power to save. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Not only that, Jesus has the power to change our lives. The scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And I was going to, preparing this sermon, I was going to just make a list of all the areas in my life where God has changed my life and other areas in my life where I see God in the process of changing my life. Little by little, the Bible says from glory to glory, making us more and more like Jesus, progressive sanctification. So Jesus has the power to save. He has the power to change. But Jesus Christ also has the power to comfort us when we're going through hard times. Now, put your bulletin where we are in Revelation and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number Seven. I want to show you a verse that I came across yesterday in my Bible reading that gripped my heart and spoke to me. And I said, i got to share this on Sunday. Because we know that Jesus, most of us know that Jesus can save. And we believe he can change our lives and make us into the people he wants us to be. But I want to say to a person here today whose heart is heavy. And maybe you're going through something difficult in your life. And you just need some peace. You need some comfort in your heart. Jesus can do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, Paul explained a time when he needed some comfort, and he found it. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Paul was looking back on a time in his life when he had problems all around him, people trying to take his life for his faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And those problems on the outside 
caused fear on the inside, just like it does for us today. Many times in life, we start having problems, and this fear can take hold in our heart. And it even happened to the Apostle Paul. But look in verse 6. Notice these first two words. Nevertheless, God. Say that with me. Nevertheless, God. Say it again by yourselves. Nevertheless, God. In other words, he's saying problems on the outside, fear on the inside. Nevertheless, God. And he's fixing to change the direction of his life. He says this, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. In other words, he described God as a person who comforts people who are downcast and discouraged. And Paul said, that same God also comforted me. And he did it by the coming of Titus. Another Christian, you know, sometimes God comforts us by his word, certainly by his spirit. Sometimes God can comfort us, and he does, by other Christians. And Paul said, at this time in my life, when I was afraid, and man, I just felt all this pressure coming in, didn't know what to do, God sent Titus along my path. And Titus encouraged me, and he built me up, and he encouraged me to keep trusting God. And Titus was kind of the means that God used to lift my spirits. The reason this verse meant so much to me yesterday, I didn't get to read it yesterday afternoon until about 4 o'clock. I normally try to read my Bible earlier in the day, but yesterday it seemed like my day was was in a little bit of a different order. And one of the reasons was because I got involved uh, with a family whom I love dearly yesterday. And uh, I want to tell you that story today. There's a family in our church who've been members here for about 20 years named Kevin and Melissa Davis. Wonderful family. Some of my really good friends. They came here from a from a fine Methodist church, and just seemed like ever since they joined First Baptist, they, they just fit right in, and just, they just love God and good people. They have two daughters. Their oldest daughter is 19 years old. Her name is, is Julia, and their youngest daughter is 18 years old, and her name is Caitlin. And when they were little girls coming up, I never could remember which one was Julia and which one was Caitlin, and, and so... I gave them nicknames. I called one of them Stinky and one of them Dinky, which they liked until they were about 10 years old, and then I had to change the names. But anyway, this is a great, great family, and and, uh, I just love them. Caitlin, the 18-year-old, the youngest daughter, for several years has really been battling with epileptic seizures. In fact, one day, Melissa brought Caitlin up here to the church office to visit with me, and I would say in the 30 to 45 minutes that we spent together here in the office, she probably had... 10 to 15 seizures within that time. She's been very critical. She's been at Herman Hospital with a fine neuro, uh, uh, neurologist, and they're doing everything they can to try to reverse this. Of course, she's on medication. With seizures happening that often, of course, she can't drive, and she's been very limited in her activities. But earlier this summer, an opportunity opened for her to go to Washington, D.C., and to do a summer internship with the Washington Times. And so she did that, and she's been having a a really good summer. She's been covering the Washington Nationals baseball team, and she's up there staying with some some friends that her parents have known, and and, uh, she's been in living in their home and just having a great, great summer. She's got her dog with her that that has been there to, to help her and to help her through all these problems that she's having. And before she went up to D, to DC, the family met with the neuro with a neurologist and wanted to know if he thought that it was safe for her to go up there. And he said, absolutely. He said, you're going to be staying with people your family knows. You're just as safe in Washington, D.C. as you would be living at home with your parents here in Pasadena. So you have my full blessing to go. He said, now I know that your family, y'all are Christian people. He said, I want you, y'all know that I'm a Christian doctor. And he said, as a Christian, 
You're praying for Caitlin to be healed of these seizures. I'm praying for her to be healed. We're treating her. We're believing that God's going to heal her of these seizures. But as your doctor, I have to tell you that studies tell us that she is in a three-year window of time here where more than likely she will have a seizure one night during her sleep and she will die. And she, he, the doctor said, I hate to even say that, but as your doctor, I have to be honest with you. And so you just need to know that is a possibility. It's not, I'm not saying that it will happen. I'm saying most likely it will happen. But as far as whether you're in Pasadena or Washington, that would have nothing to do with that. So she went up there, and as I said, she was having a good summer. Well, she went to bed Friday night, and sometime between Friday night and Saturday morning, sure enough, what that doctor said came true. She had a seizure. And Caitlin died. And so yesterday, I started getting phone calls from other friends and telling me what had happened. And so I went to Kevin and Melissa's house. What do you, you, know, what do you say in a time like that? I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything you can say except I love you and I'm praying for you. And so when I drove up, Johnny Gale Mormon was there. She and Mike, I think her husband Mike had been there. Tim Neighbors, one of our ministers, was getting out of his truck. And Tim and I walked in together. And I, you, know, you get in a situation like that, it's just, sad. It's just very sad. Because, I, I mean, I was very close to Caitlin, too, and her sister, Julia. And so I hugged Kevin and hugged Melissa. And, and we talked and cried and prayed. And after I'd been there for a while, it was about time for them to get ready to fly to Baltimore, where they were flying into last night, to get Caitlin's body and bring Caitlin back home. But Melissa said to me, she said, hey, John, before you go, I want to show you something. She said, before Caitlin went to D.C., she got a certain kind of Sharpie marker that you can write on the mirror, and she wrote us a lot of Bible verses and notes on some of our mirrors throughout the house. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to see that. And so she took me to one mirror, and it's, she had written the scripture out of 1 Corinthians 10 that says, God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you can bear. And I looked at that and I, I thought to myself, I thought, that, that is a word from God now for the family. We went to another mirror and it, she had written on there, today is a great day. And I thought, and I said to Melissa, I said, Melissa, if Caitlin could speak to us today, that's what she would say. She would say, today is a great day. She took me to another mirror and I saw it. And Caitlin had written a verse on that mirror. But underneath that verse, she had written these words. She said, stay strong in your faith and keep your eyes on the Lord. I said, Melissa, and I said to Kevin too. I said, what Caitlin wrote to be a blessing to you guys while she was going to be gone for a few months to D.C. has now actually become prophetic. I said, her words to you are now God's words to you. And God is faithful. And God was, I said, I just can't believe that what she has written has now got so much prophetic and relevance to the situation you're going through now. And they said, John, that's how we feel. We don't think we'll ever be able to erase those words off these mirrors. And when I saw that, I was just, it was so much in my heart. I thought, God, you, you are comforting Kevin and Melissa and Julia by writing in Caitlin's hand that she put on those mirrors before she went to D.C. And now her words have become your words for this family. I went 
went home to then do my Bible reading, and I read this verse, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And I thought, God, sometimes you comfort us by your word. Sometimes you comfort us by your spirit. But God, many times you comfort us by your people. And yesterday I saw a beautiful example of how God comforted a mom and a dad and a sister by the words that Caitlin had written before she went to Washington, D.C. And so when it says in that verse that Jesus has these seven horns, it's easy for us just to skip right, but, but remember, it means he has all power, power to save, power to change, and he has power to comfort us and to give us peace. So you still listen and say amen. Now, let me mention something else Jesus has power that he has and, and reason we should worship him. Not only does he have all power, but he has all knowledge. Look at the end of verse number six. Again, having seven horns, but watch this, and and seven eyes. What's the significance of these seven eyes being described here by John? Again, seven is the number of completeness. Eyes see. What does seven eyes mean? It means that Jesus can see us completely. And I want to say to you today, those of you here going through a difficult time, Jesus Christ can see your situation better than you can. And I might not can understand what you feel. You might not can understand sometime what I feel. But Jesus understands how we all feel. He has these seven eyes. And then another reason he's worthy of our worship, look at the description of these seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Jesus Christ is everywhere. He can see what you're going through, what I'm going through, what somebody in Peru is going through, what somebody in North Korea is going through, or what China or in South Korea. All around the world, Jesus can see because Jesus Christ is everywhere. No other religious leader in the world can say, and it be honest, that I'm everywhere at the same time. But Jesus can. And so, He is worthy of our worship. Think about these things we're saying. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He is the creator of all things, sacrificial and risen lamb. He has all power. He can see everything. He knows everything. He understands everything. And Jesus Christ is everywhere at the same time. Now you say, John, what should we do in response to the fact that Jesus is that worthy? What is he worthy of? First of all, Jesus Christ is worthy of our prayers. Look in verse number uh, 8. Well, first of all, in verse 7, it says, Then Jesus came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the 24 creatures and the four, li- and, and the 20, the four living creatures rather, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I wish I had more time to deal with this, but we know that in heaven there are prayer bowls. And every time we pray, our prayers are going in those bowls. And those prayers, like incense, are being are like smoke from an altar, are coming up into the nostrils of God as a ple- pleasing and a pleasant aroma to Him. So He's worthy of our prayers, but He's also worthy of our praise. Look in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the seven scrolls. This is one of the reasons we call our Sunday night service a prayer and praise service. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worthy of our prayer and He's worthy of our praise. And that's what they're doing in heaven today. They are praising God and they're worshiping Him for who He is. Again, Jesus is worthy of everything. Our prayer, our praise, our hearts, our faith, our lives. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, maybe you're like the person at the beginning. You say, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know if it's Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or nothing. I'm asking you today, in light of what we've seen out of Revelation 5, 
the fact that Jesus is worthy, I'm asking you today to give your heart to him. I'm going to stop right there with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to stop the sermon just at this point because I want us to have time at the very end to end our service by singing part of that song again as we prepare to leave. But before we do that, I believe just like in the first service, there are people in this service who need to be saved. You have sins in your heart that need to be forgiven. We have all sinned. I have sinned. You have sinned. All have sinned, the scripture says, and fall short of the glory of God. And today, if you would like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I have shown you six reasons out of one chapter in the Bible why He is worthy. And I'm encouraging you right now to ask Him. Pray a prayer. Pray this prayer. And ask Jesus to come into your heart. Just say these words in your heart. Say, dear Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy of my heart and you're worthy of my faith. I ask you now to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be. I believe people have prayed that prayer. I just feel it in my heart that people have prayed that prayer in this service. And I want to say to you, congratulations. Your sins have all been washed away. And Jesus Christ is now living in your heart. He's the risen lamb. And he's taken up residence in your heart. And he wants to go home with you. Just like that lamb went into the homes of those Jewish people before Passover. Jesus wants to go home with you today and have a real relationship with you. In just a moment, we're going to give you a chance to come forward and share that decision with me or my dad or one of the other ministers here as your way of letting other people know. You don't have to give a speech. You can just say to us, as, as one did in the first service, hey, I just prayed that prayer. You just come and tell me that. Hey, I prayed that prayer with you, John. I just got saved. Others here today, maybe you prayed that prayer a long time ago, but you've never let it be known publicly. We're going to give you a chance to do that. And then others today, you've done that. You've confessed Christ, but you feel God leading you to join our church. And so I'm going to just, we invite you. I, I'm asking you as a couple, as a family, as a single adult, as a student, if you feel God leading you to join our First Baptist family during this next song, I'm going to ask you to come. Father, may your will be done during this song of invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said.